Welcome to the Equipping You in Grace podcast, hosted by Dave Jenkins. The Equipping You in Grace podcast is a podcast about helping Christians develop a biblical worldview in a conversational tone about issues inside and outside the church. Now, for today's episode, let's join our host, Dave Jenkins. Welcome back to the Equipping You in Grace podcast. My name is Dave, and I'm the host for this podcast. And with me today, I get to welcome back my friend, Ben Rogers. Ben, welcome to welcome back to the Equipping You in Grace podcast. Thank you for having me, Dave. It's good to be back. Yeah, it's great to great to chat with you, brother. appreciate you. Can you uh, just catch us up on what's going on in your life, marriage, ministry, and what are you working on ministry project-wise? Sure. Well, I um, not too long ago, uh, I published or edited and kind of reintroduced uh, Simplicity in Preaching by Ryle which we're going to be talking about today. And I've been working on another Ryle project. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Thoughts for Young Men. It's almost like a a minor spiritual classic for uh, young men. And so what I've been doing is uh, breaking it up into sort of daily readings or lessons that can be used either individually or in a small group setting or in a one-to-one discipleship relationship. I've updated some of the language and added discussion questions to it. Uh, and at the end of it, I added a, a previously unpublished work by Ryle. Or I, I should, it's not unpublished, it's only been published one. That was in uh, 1889 uh, about Daniel the prophet. He sort of illustrates all the things that Ryle incurred uh, in God's for Young Men. So I'm almost done with that. I only have a couple more readings left to, to, to edit and add questions to, and that should be coming out soon. Uh, then after that, what I want to do is compile, essentially, thoughts for young women. Um, I've, in addition to pastoring a church, I, I teach Bible and Latin at a local Christian school, and um, some of the most outstanding um, Christians I teach are, are young women, and so I thought it would be good uh, to cull through Ryle's works and find various addresses that he makes to women and put them together in one volume, like he did for thoughts for young men and uh, get that ready for um, for uh, for the ladies uh, I think it would be a, a valuable work so gonna be doing that pretty soon and um, thinking about and praying about writing a couple of short biographies for uh, H&E on uh, Ryle and uh, John Bunyan so my, my writing plate and research plate is full right now ministry plate is full as we're all experiencing the, the, these novel challenges with pandemic and all the fun things that go with it so serving in the church and getting ready to get back to school i think um <laughs> in a couple in about three weeks so we'll be cranking school back up then so it's a busy time it's been a happy time getting to spend a lot of extra time with my family at home looking forward to talking with you about simplicity and preaching well it's good to always hear what's what's happening and i i'll, I'll definitely be praying for you i know there's a lot of challenges with pastoral ministry and teaching these days so you have my you have my full all my prayers so for sure thank you i need it and we need it amen can you uh just tell us a little bit about this book simplicity and preaching by jc ryle that you edited what why you wanted to edit it and uh how you hope it's well or how you hope it's being received sure well let me tell you a little bit about how it came into being Uh, jc ryle is a sure to your listeners, is a, is a well-known name, uh, and he was an incredibly popular minister and writer in 19th century Victorian England. He lived 1816 to 1900. Um, he didn't intend to go into ministry, uh, really in God's providence. His father's bankruptcy that drove him into 
into the ministry. So he, he entered the ministry with um, <laughs> not really intending to be a minister, uh, without really any ministerial training whatsoever before becoming ordained. And so he was just thrown into it. And he says in his autobiography that he began to just experiment to try to figure out uh, how to minister to God's people that he was given charge of. And he, he said he made many sad experience, uh, experiments. And really what simplicity is, it is the fruit of those experiments. So Ronald's early days in ministry, he just he was he was an Oxford first class man, a talented academic, um, recently bankrupt, went from uh, riches to, to rags, and um, he was preaching to, to day laborers essentially in in New Forest and he could not keep their attention. He said they would they would put their feet up and go to sleep and just sleep all church service. And so Ralph began to experiment, and through a, through a period of trial and error, he found his voice. He found how to get and keep people's attention, and he essentially distilled, or he presents those hints for us in this book. It was written in 1882, so this is years Ralph can minister in the 1840s. Um, this is at the very end of his ministry, sort of, uh, his second year as a bishop in uh, Liverpool. And he wrote this book, I think, to, to help his new ministers, his, the ministers he's given charge of, to be better preachers. Uh, and so why did I want to get it out? Well, I think his, I think his advice is, is valuable. Um, there are lots of books on ministry. There are lots of books on preaching. What sets simplicity apart is that it's not about the ministry and it's not about preaching in general. It's about one specific part of preaching, and that is cultivating simplicity in your preaching. And so I think that's a valuable skill to learn. Um, I, in addition to pastoring, I, I write and I teach. Um, and so I need, as a, as a communicator of God's Word and historical stuff, I need to be a simple, clear, and forceful communicator. And I think this book helps preachers do that well. I think it helps teachers do that well. I think it helps writers do that well. And so I, I hope that, that preachers, but also Sunday school teachers, but also school teachers, but also discipleship leaders, youth leaders, um, anybody who communicates God's truth to other people, even fathers in homes, uh, mothers in homes, would do well, I think, can benefit from hints that he gives in this book. Uh, every Bible teacher can can use and benefit from. Yeah, that that's really really good. That's a good answer. Uh, can you uh, tell us a little bit about the time period of J.C. Ryle and a bit about the man himself, please? Sure, sure. Uh, like I mentioned a moment ago, he was born in 1816. He died in 1900. Uh, he lived in England. Um, so we're talking about the Victorian age, and the Victorian age was a golden age of preaching. So it would not be uncommon for people in a big city like London or Leeds or Manchester or Liverpool, York even, uh, in any big town, it would not be uncommon for people to hear two or three sermons a Sunday. Um, the Victorians were notorious for being sermon tasters. And so, um, you know, it was a golden age of preaching. Uh, Ryle became, I think, one of the lesser lights in the Victorian, Victorian homiletical firmament. I mean, he's a, he, in terms of like his writing now, he's very popular, but he was a very popular as a preacher in his own lifetime. Uh, he was born into a wealthy home. His, his grandfather was uh, a friend of John Wesley, the, the revival leader, but his father didn't pick up on that. He wasn't as interested in spiritual things as his grandfather was. He grew up in an extremely wealthy home, an unspiritual home. He went to eat in Oxford, where he distinguished himself as an athlete and as a, a scholar, graduated with first class first-class honors, moved back home to get into his father's business and perhaps into politics, but his father bankrupted 
um, is banks. And this is before limited liability, right? So if you go bankrupt, everything has to be sold. I mean, Miles sold his saddle, his horse, things. I mean, even part of his uniform as a, you know, kind of a local militia. Um, all those things had to be sold. Mm. And he felt compelled uh, to enter the, the ministry. Uh, I'm forgetting, of course, the fact that he became a, a Christian in a remarkable way. Um, let me back up a little bit to the time when he was in Oxford. Even though he grew up going to church and being a part of these religious institutions like Eton College or Oxford, he wasn't a believer. Um, he went to church regularly, but these things hadn't sunk home yet with him. In his autobiography, he records these series of events, uh, the rebuke of a friend, uh, sickness before his exams that began to, to move him closer and closer towards the Lord. Uh, but the great, the, the great moment, you might say, was in the, in the summer before he, he took his exams in the fall. When he was down, he was dejected. He walked into this church he didn't even remember later on in life the, the name of or the minister. But he heard this emphatic reading of Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, right? For by grace you are saved through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. And, and Ralph says in his autobiography, like, that was it. That, that was the, the moment where um, he became a Christian and, uh, or became fully converted. You know, something like that. And uh, it's a public reading of the Word. So his, his conversion is one of his great testimonies to the public reading of Scripture and the importance of the public reading of Scripture. So if any of your listeners or, or you uh, read Scripture publicly on Sunday Sundays or Sunday nights or Wednesdays or whenever they meet, that's a that's a big deal. Rahal was converted, one of the great, uh, the great ministers of the Church of England, one of the great bishops of the Church of England, one of the great evangelical voices in the last 200 years was converted. The means of his conversion seems to be just the public reading of Scripture, which is, I think, great. That anytime I ask someone to to read Scripture in church, I often remind them of this truth that they never have, uh, they never heard it, or if they never read before. So it's a great privilege to do that. Um, well, let me fast forward back to Riles in ministry. Like I mentioned, he went through these trial, uh, the series of experiments to try to find his voice. He found it. He began to to draw. To keep and hold his people's attention, people began to come from uh, other communities, small communities, to hear him preach, and uh, his ministry was born. Uh, he was a, you know, a well-known preacher. He became a writer of evangelical tracts. Now, when we think of tracts, we often think of those, you know, two-page things that, uh, like Romans Road, you know, conversion tracts that someone might leave at a table for a waiter or a waitress. Ross tracts were 30, 60, 90 pages long, so we should think, think in terms of short books. Um, he wrote this great series on the Gospels called the Commentary Series on the Gospels, called Expository Thoughts on the Gospels. Uh, a number of his sermons were collected in books like Old Paths, Practical Religion, A Knots Untied is a great work he put out. Uh, Holiness uh, is one of his most famous books, perhaps his most single famous book. Um, and that got published in the late 1870s in response to Keswick spirituality. And that book is, I think, is one of the, the best. Um, and those forceful presentations of sort of reformed, pure, the Thomas progress in propositional you know, form. Um, then he became bishop of Liverpool in uh, 1880, where he served for the rest of his life. Uh, was the second city of the empire at that time, just a remarkable ministry there. And it was a joy to kind of get to, to work through his life and these phases of ministry from New Forest to Helmingham to Stradbroke to uh, Liverpool. In a biography I wrote of him called uh, J.C. Ryle, I mean, uh, The Tender Lion, The Life, Ministry and Message of J.C. Ryle. And that's where I worked through kind of the, try to put Ryle in his context and his place and work through his life. Uh, and his writing is chronologically there. So I think that's, I think I've told you a lot more than a little about Ralph's life, but I hope that gives you and your, your hearers some sort of 
sense of uh, who he was, when he was, and his significance. No, that that's a great answer. Very, very helpful. What are some of the marks of Ryle's crucified style of preaching? Sure. Well, let, let's try to define it first of all. Uh, Ryle's crucified style um, was essentially, you find it in Simplicity and Brute Preaching, you can see this in, in that book on page 10, it said Ryle's crucified style may be described as classical rhetorical theory simplified stylistically for pastoral purposes. So let me unpack that. Right, Ryle went into ministry with no homiletical training. Right, he wasn't preparing to go into ministry. He was preparing to go into politics. And uh, but, but through through his classical education at Eton and at Oxford, he was exposed to the greats of the classical uh, rhetorical tradition, like Aristotle, Cicero, Quintilian, and he, he quotes those in Simplicity and, and other works. So he he learned from those uh, classical authors about the structure, the purpose, the means of uh, persuasion, those sorts of things. So he actually was grounded. He got a very good grounding and a rhetoric or oratory um, in God's providence, even though he had no intention of going to ministry while he was while he was getting it. And so when he becomes a, a minister, he, he reverts back to that training um, and learns over time to to take those those critical pieces of the rhetorical tradition, things like uh, the, the persuasive, you know, orations should be persuasive, uh, the means of persuasion, like logos, pathos, ethos, uh, the structure of an oration, um, the use of memory, uh, those sorts of things. That, you know, he, he embraces those things. You can see those in his sermons or in his writings, which are almost all former sermons. You can find them all there, but what he does is he simplifies them stylistically for pastoral purposes. In other words, you know, Cicero and Aristotle, Quintilian, the classical orators wanted to, part of the persuasive power of oration was the flourish and the style and the impressive language and um, complexity even sometimes of of the speaker and the argument. And Ryle wanted none of that, right? He, he's preaching to day laborers who are trying to go to sleep. So what he wants to do is, is keep the best of the classical tradition and simplify the style and the language in order to keep and or to grab and keep his hearers' attention. So when you think about the crucified, crucified style, think about classical uh, rhetorical tradition plus evangelical pastoral priorities. And that's and that's the uh, the crucified style. That's, that's great. <clears throat> how does simplicity in preaching affect how we approach the biblical text? Don't understand the biblical text. Don't preach it. <laughs> that, that's his. You know, he gets five hints of simplicity about about how to, to cultivate a simple style of preaching. And the first hint is if you don't understand the text, don't preach it. Um, now, this is one of the reasons why Ryle was uh, did not preach expository, you know, consecutive expository sermon. So you won't find him preaching through First uh, Kings like I'm doing right now. now. I would disagree with him on that, uh, but he's right about one thing that you're not going to be simple and clear and persuasive if you don't under if it's clear you don't understand what it is you're reading. Um, and what you're teaching. So the very first thing he would say to any teacher or preacher is that you've got to understand what it is you're about to teach. And so, um, you know, that for him, that would mean, therefore, choose a text you understand. But if, like, you're like me, I'm going to be preaching on 1 Kings 13 uh, next Sunday. Um, that means that if, if it, I've got to work to understand, the first thing I've got to do, is, like step one, is make sure I understand 1 Kings 13. And once I understand 1 Kings 13, it's it, it's um, I may be able to be simple, but it's certainly I'll never be a simple communicator, 1 Kings 13, if I don't understand that chapter first. 
So that's it. That's the first hint. Is uh, you've got to understand your biblical text. Whatever it is you're preaching or teaching, you don't understand it. Don't teach it because you can't be simple. If you can't be simple, you won't be heard. Yeah. What is it? I think Alistair Begg says, you know, you should study yourself clear or pray yourself clear or something like that. And I think he probably got that from Ryle. You know, it's kind of the same sort of thought. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, if you, if you, if it's not clear in your head, in your mind, and in your heart, what this, what, what God's word says, what it means, and how it applies. Um, then of course no one else is going to be. You're not going to be able to magically convince other people of uh, you know its clarity, its obvious application, those sorts of things. Yeah, well said. What does it look like to use simple words in our preaching? <laughs> um, use simple words, right? I mean, when you can communicate. I mean, there's a tendency, and I think especially in in certain circles. I mean, and for younger ministers to try to impress their hearers. Um, especially, I mean, if you, I mean, I went to RTS. I, I live, I've grown up around RTS Jackson. So there's always been, you know, RTS faculty members, you know, floating around uh, Jackson. I, I'm, I'm a pastor of Presbyterian Church, but I have friends who, who on some Sunday, uh, Sunday nights even, or Wednesday nights would end up preaching in church before their seminary professors. And I think that there would be a tendency among those young men at that time to impress their seminary professors with just the language they use, you know, um, from language like perichoresis or circumcessio or whatever the case may be, right? Using language to impress people. I would say don't do that. Don't use language to impress people. Uh, use language to communicate to people. Um, use simple words. Um, use simple language. Use simple ideas to communicate to, to everyday everyday folks, uh, to not just to adults, to, to children. Um, and that's, I think, one of the tests that I, I try to go through when I preach. I think Ryle would encourage me in this, is that I, I have an eight-year-old and a five-year-old, and it, if I'm trying to make a, especially an important point in a sermon, if, my, if I use language that my eight-year-old can't understand, I need to use different language. Um, and I don't think that's, that's dumbing down um, God's Word. That's just being more simple and more clear, which in turn enables me to reach more people than I'm preaching to. Yeah, that, that's really good. I, I, remember, I remember I preached the quote-unquote seminary sermon that you were talking about. And uh, uh, I remember after or before uh, one of the pastors saying, make sure you love the people with the word. And that's always kind of struck me, you know, what, what does that mean? It means, you know, that you f- focus on the text and preach, you know, Christ from the text and all those, you know, very basic preaching things. But it also means, I think, using simple words to me, you know, if you're going to use a theological word like propitiation, you need to explain it just very simply. What is it? What is the most basic meaning of the word just so people know you know it's okay to preach you know use big words but you have to explain those words very simply um and the same goes true i think in writing you know we shouldn't be afraid to use those words we just have to explain them very simply that's right that's right because if, if what i would say is if, if, if uh if you can't be yeah if you if you can't be simple you can't be understood and if you can't be understood there's no point in preaching <laughs> Amen. Or Am- teaching or doing yeah. Amen. What does it mean to have a simple style in the composition of our sermons? Well, Ryle was a manuscript writer, and he used manuscripts for, uh, I think, a good portion of his ministry. And so for Ryle, manuscript writing was a discipline that helped him organize his thoughts, you know, present uh, his material, do his studies. I mean, the same reasons why many of us use manuscripts. I use manuscripts every week for, you know, for a lot of different reasons. And what Ryle would say is that as you prepare your manuscripts, uh, as you prepare, as you compose your sermon, uh, make sure you use simple, uh, simple style of composition. And for him, that means 
shorten it uh, and you means using lots of paragraphs rather than you know long flowing um, massive paragraphs uh, one of the things that I did at simplicity is I included an appendix where I looked at three different preachers uh, and their sermons on the same text. So I looked at Spurgeon's sermon on John 11, uh, Ryle's sermon on John 11, and John Henry Newman, who's a, a, a very significant, prominent uh, Anglo-Catholic and Catholic. Uh, they all lived at the same, around the same time and preached on the same passage around the same time. And what's amazing is to see how different those, those, uh, their style of composition was. So uh, John Henry Newman's sermon uh, was much shorter than, than, than the other two, uh, because Anglo-Catholics view the sacraments as, as more significant than the preached word, or Spurgeon and, and Ryle would be on a different page there. Uh, but apart from the length of the sermon, I mean, John Henry Newman averaged something like 30 words a sentence. That's a lot of words. Uh, Spurgeon was like a 24, 25, I think. Ryle was like a 14. <laughs> so he writes very short sentences on purpose. And that the reason for that is to be simple and clear, but also to be direct uh, and forceful. So Ryle says that you should compose your sermons like you're asthmatic, right? Like you've got a, a bad cough. You can barely get long sentences out. So compose your sermon like you, you've got asthma, like you've got a cold, and you, you can't give long, flowing sentences, but what you can do is give short, powerful sentences. And that's that's the, the composition and the style of composition that he encouraged uh, preachers and teachers to, to embrace. Yeah, that's, that's really good. What does it mean to preach in a direct style? It means to use pronoun, you know, to, direct, to, to directly address people with you. Right, so if you look at Victorian sermons, oftentimes they'll use language like, well, we think this, or we's and us's. And Ryle says, don't do that, because nobody knows who you're talking about. When you speak about, when a minister says, we believe this, well, who's we? Is it all Christians? Is it all Christian ministers? Is it all, you know, bishops? Is it all Anglicans? What, what are you talking about when you talk about we? It's unclear. And the goal of simplicity in preaching is to be simple. Uh, you know, using we and us isn't simple in communication. It's confusing. Uh, so he says, when, when you have something to say, say I. When you have something for somebody to do, think, or believe, you use you. And that's one of the things I think that makes Ryle's writing, not just in simplicity, but in holiness, in practical religion, in um, Old Paths, and his other works that, that are well-loved. You also get the sense that Ryle is directly speaking to you in his writing. Well, the way, the reason you feel that way is because he keeps saying, you do this, you do this, you do this. Um, like I said, I've been going through thoughts for, for young men, and over and over again, he says, young man, young man, or young men, young men. He's directly addressing the hearer. And, and that gives the reader a sense that they're speaking being spoken directly to, and it, it keeps it keeps helps keep our attention. But it also, again, it's about being simple and communication. Ron wants you to do something, or not to do something, or to believe this, not to believe this. And using language like "you" is not rude. It's not being uh, confrontational. It's just being direct. In order to be simple, you have to be direct. Yeah, that's well said. How, how important is it that we use stories and illustrations in our in our sermons? You know, Ryle would say very. Um, yeah, I grew up, when I, when I was in seminary at R.C.S. Jackson, I had wonderful uh, preaching professors uh, there, and they discouraged, to some degree, um, the use of, of stories and illustrations and anecdotes. I, I think because of the time in which we live, because so many of us, you know, from 2002 to 2006 when I was there, where sometimes there's a tendency to, to go the, to, to err in the opposite direction. That's right. Yeah. right? That, that a sermon can be so filled with personal illustrations and anecdotes and, and uh, those sorts of things that the message is completely lost. Uh, Ralph certainly would count that, but what he would say is that if you want to keep people's attention, um, use well-chosen stories to illustrate a certain point. And if you look at Ryle's preaching, and Spurgeon is the same way, by the way, uh, the, fir- the first place they often go to illustrate is the Bible itself, right? So, so they'll teach on the truth and uh, in the New Testament, then they'll illustrate it from the Old. Or they'll be teaching in the Old Testament, and they'll try to illustrate it from the New. I think it's a very a good technique for a teacher, because not only do you end up illustrating a truth you're trying to, to help people understand, but you're exposing them to more of God 
God's Word. Um, so raw illustrations in his sermons. He would use church history. That'd be another one that you see all the time where he would reference, you know, John Newton or Luther or Calvin on occasion or depending on his audience, he would sort of pick the right one. So if he's addressing children, he would use Luther. He would use both, uh, right? If he's addressing an Oxford audience, a clerical audience, he would quote the, you know, uh, 17th and 16th century English bishops. Uh, if he's addressing working men in Liverpool, he would use uh, illustrations that come from shipbuilding or sailing or things that people could connect to. So when Rahul would, would encourage using stories and illustrations, this wasn't just like a blank check. Hey, just fill your sermons up or your lessons up with, with uh, random stories. They have to be, they have to not only illustrate the truth you're trying to make, but they need to be tailored to the audience that they're um, that they're that they're given to. Uh, and you can see this masterfully in Ryle uh, in the way that he tailors his his content. You can see, you know, he'll preach he preached a lot of sermons. You can find sermons that he gave to children. Right? He wrote a famous book on children's stuff. Um, you can see him preach the same text to adults, and he communicates the same truth, but using using a very different. Right? He's not going to talk about bugs or children's games or Christmas. Uh, that, that's what he'll do with kids. With adults, he'll talk about the you know, biblical characters, uh, church history, things like that. Um, but that, that he, he thought they were important to keep and grab people's attention, and he was discriminating in his choice of them. So I think if he were encouraging us today, he would say, definitely use appropriate stories and illustrations that don't distract from the point you're making, um, but but appropriately highlight and illustrate uh, what you're trying to do. And if you can do it from Bible, great. If you can do it from church history, great. But above all, be, be audience-specific. Uh, tailor your sermon to the people you're addressing. Yeah, that, that's really, really good. What are some of the challenges of application in sermons, and what did Ryle have to say about it? <laughs> Well, uh, this is a, I think the fact that this is a challenge, I think every teacher and preacher knows. Um, what does First Corinthians 13, I mean, not First Corinthians, what does First Kings 13 say to New Covenant believers? That's something that I'm, I'm going to have to wrestle with this week as I get ready for, for that sermon. Um, and Ryle was aware of those challenges, too. Uh, that's why I really like, one thing I really like is reading and studying the expository thoughts Gospels, because that's a commentary series, like I said, on the Gospels, but it initially began as a series of college lectures. Uh, lectures, cottage, not college, cottage lectures, where he would go in his community, like, well, you know, one day of the week, and, and open up Matthew and read 10 verses, and then began to, to, to teach it, but most of it is application. So, uh, Ryle is very good at this. If you think in terms of what Ryle really excels at, it sets him apart from his peers in a kind of Victorian era, one would be simplicity, two would be application. He's a master uh, at application, and he's sort of like William Perkins, right? William Perkins had these six categories of hearers that he's trying to but you don't all, you know, he would say that you don't always hit each box. You think you check each of those six boxes, but you need to regularly. Well, Ron would definitely say you need to hit three boxes in every sermon. You need to awaken the unconverted. You need to help the undecided come to decision. And you need to promote growth and grace to the believer. And those three applications are almost in every sermon, uh, certainly, or in every writing. I mean, just pop open old paths of practical religion and after you read a chapter at the very end there'll usually be this application section where he, he directly addresses an unbeliever where he directly addresses someone who's on the fence and when he directly addresses a believer and encourages them to, to do these things so that's I think what Ryle's advice is or would be right it is a challenge it takes work like everything else but really you take focus on those categories the, the unconverted the unawakened unconverted the, 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 the person on the fence the person who's interested and but hasn't yet committed their whole heart to the Lord for whatever reason, and he would address that person. He would address the, the sincere believer who wants to grow grace. He's, he's always thinking in terms of those three people, the, the unconverted, the undecided, and, was, and a sincere Christian. Yeah, that's that's really good. I, I, I remember uh, what Jonathan Edwards used to do, and, it, and it's kind of affected my uh, approach to application, and 
that is that he would go out in the you know in the in the forest and he would pray and study nature and he would also study his own heart and I think when we come to application you know if we if we're you know we don't have to study nature necessarily like Edwards but if we're studying scripture as we should and 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 we're also studying our own heart we're gonna always have something that that relates to you know the human condition or the particular point of the passage you know because it all points to Christ and uh, exposing our hearts uh, to more to him and our we you know we have a, as Spurgeon said you know we have a great need of Christ and a great Christ from our need and so that that always has just kind of come back to me for application you know that that's a simple thought but it's it's a powerful thing and we'll always have something to say in application if we just keep that in mind I think yeah absolutely good, good word that's something a great approach and I think Raul would, Raul would, would amen that although Raul never talks about himself that drives me nuts as a, as a historian is that you can read you know, if you don't know his life well I mean, if you know it's like, well, you'll catch little hints of, of things going on in his own life, in his own heart that he'll mention. But really, um, you know, I think he does that study that you're talking about, and I, and I think that, that he brings that into his son. He certainly does, although he's not going to say, like, well, I struggle with this too, or something like that, because for him, he he, he is just, he is dry, trying to drive truth in people's heart. He doesn't want to look at him at all, um, other than just listen to what he says and respond appropriately. Um, but I definitely think, like you said, he's behind the scenes doing the work, wrestling with his own heart, with his own sin, and that's I think some of that, some of that, you know, not wanting to share was, was also the, that particular cultural moment, you know, where people weren't, you know, in the, and like in the West, they were more open and honest. And, you know, I know there's some pastors that, that are like, well, Bible teachers are like, well, I shouldn't really talk about myself. And, but I, I think it's, I think, you know, in an appropriate sense, I mean, not in appropriate sense in an appropriate way you know if there's uh, a particular passage um and and you've gone through something and you're or you're growing in something i think it's okay to to talk about that and i think people really i know when i've done it in an, an appropriate way people really appreciate it yeah and i think you know one of the things that was taught to me at the, back in my seminary days is that as long as you're not distracting i think it's okay right so you know as long as you're not self-glorying um, and, you know, presenting something as like, oh, do this just like I do, right? Uh, you, you know, it's, it's far, I think it's far better to to, to, to be self-deprecating and, and not... Uh, <laughs> And not try to, to, you know, to sing your own praises from the pulpit. Yeah. But anyway, I always appreciated that seminary that they they were uh, professors like David Justly and Derek Thomas were. Um, I think if you know, if you use if you use yourself as an illustration, just be sure not to, to try to preach yourself. Um, yeah. Don't don't be saying yeah. Don't be saying oh look at how great I am and and uh, no look at look at how it's all about how you phrase it right. It's this is something that I've gone through and God's helped me in this and then you say you know this and the point that I'm making. Really relates to this text because it draws out this particular point or something like that I think is is good just to give an example absolutely absolutely so, and it's, you know, especially I think when you're talking about suffering or difficulty or trials that's helpful um, it's helpful to, to perhaps give, give people uh, insight into um, some healthy and not so healthy ways or some helpful some holy ways to deal with suffering and difficulty and grief things like that and, and things and also or illustrate ways that aren't so healthy um, but again as long as well said, brother. Well said. Where can people go uh, to learn more about your work online, uh, on social media, or otherwise, brother? Sure. Well, um, you can find me on Twitter at uh, 
Bennett W. Rogers. That's B-E-N-N-E-T-T-W-R-O-G-E-R-S. Uh, and that's my Instagram as well. So you can find uh, that. end up posting a lot of raw quotes from all three young men as I, uh, <laughs> as I edit it. So um, pretty much you can know what I'm working on every day if you're on I throw up a Ryle quote, thoughts for young men, you'll know exactly where I am and what I'm doing, and that you can see uh, on Instagram, uh, I'm at Bennett W. Rogers, B-N-N-E-T-T-W-R-G-E-R-S on Instagram, and there's, uh, again, some more Ryle stuff, but also some other things up there, too. Wonderful, brother. Well, you know, there's a, there's a lot that we could talk about when it comes to this subject, and just as we wrap up, do you have a few takeaways? Yeah, I, I think Ryle would tell us that simplicity takes work. Nobody's really born really good at being simple. At least for Ryle, took a lot of work. He took years of work uh, and conscious effort to become a simple communicator, uh, both in, in preaching and in, in writing. But I think it's worth it because God's people are worth it. Um, mm. you, you know, I, I just, the, the more and more I pastor a small church, and we have a lot of young people in our church because we've got three families. And really, I mean, nearly half of my congregation each week is under 20. I, I really, I, I think it's incumbent upon me as a pastor as a, as a, and a minister of God's Word to cultivate a simple style so that a 12-year-old, an 8-year-old, a 5-year-old, an 11-year-old, a 17-year-old can understand what First Kings 13 is going to say to this week or next week. Um, so I would, I would encourage uh, myself and you and your hearers to, to not be discouraged, but to pursue simplicity in preaching and teaching and communicating. Um, and that does take effort, uh, but it's it, it's uh, worth it. It certainly took effort for Ryle, but it's worth it because we benefit from it every time we open expository thoughts or simplicity in preaching or old or holiness, any of those words. Uh, we encounter God's word proclaimed to us in a simple, clear, forceful way. That really is Ryle style. That's wonderful, brother. Well, I, I so appreciate the time that you've given to me today and, and your continued excellent work on Ryle. Um, I, I love, I'm a huge fan of Ryle and, and just think he's he's awesome. So I appreciate your continued work on him and um, our friendship. God bless you, brother. Thank you, brother. I enjoyed it. Me too. Thank you for listening to the Equipping You and Grace podcast. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, rate us on the app, and share this with your friends and family on social media. If you want to find us on social media, you can find us on Twitter at Servants of Grace, on Instagram at Servants of Grace, or by searching at Servants of Grace on Facebook. You can also find this episode and many others like it on the front page of our website, servantsofgrace.org.